Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Hi, this is Lacey Skarmana, producer of The Gallery Gap. The Augustina Teaching Museum of Art recently hosted a panel of the Rainbow Coalition. It was a multiracial coalition that formed in the late 1960s in Chicago to work against racism, poverty, and oppression. The August 30th panel discussion included Stan McKinney, former member of the Illinois Black Panther Party, Michael James from Rising Up Angry, Antonio Lopez, a spokesperson for the Young Lords, and Hy Thurman from the Young Patriots. The conversation was moderated by Augustana College's Brian Lovato. This is the full audio of the panel. Please note that it has not been edited for content and contains language that could be offensive to some listeners. You can learn more about the panel and the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art exhibit Organize Your Own, The Politics and Poetics of Self-Determination Movements in Episode 15 of The Gallery Gap. I'd like to thank you all for joining us this evening for the Rainbow Coalition part of the programming for our fall exhibition, Organize Your Own, The Politics and Poetics of Self-Determination Movements. I'm Claire Kovacs. I'm the director of the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art. And before we begin, I just want to take a moment to do a little bit of housekeeping. First, I want to tell you a little bit about some other upcoming events related to this exhibit that you might be interested in because you're here tonight. So on the 28th of September... We will be having a conversation on the role of women, the role and work of women in these organizations that work against oppression, racism, poverty, and police brutality. That's taking place, as I said, on September 28th. We don't have a time yet, so keep an eye on the Augustana Symposium Day schedule, and I will put that also on the Art Museum's website and on our social media, so you're welcome to come to that. And then on the 11th of October at 7 p.m. in the Yevla Rooms, which is up across campus in the Gerber Center, we are having a Map the Power workshop with Little Sis, which is part of the Public Accountability Initiative. This workshop will teach participants about the importance of mapping power and money as part of an organizing agenda. So for those of you in the room that are students of organizing or organizers or activists yourselves, this might be a good community-building, skill-building workshop for you to attend. I'd like to thank the the sponsors that helped make this possible this evening, the Reynolds and Johnny Gauss Gauss Lee Colmaine Endowment for the Visual Arts, and the Institute for Leadership and Service for their support of this exhibition and programming. So on to tonight's program. I want to offer some brief introductions to our participants, and then I'm going to get out of the way so you don't have to listen to me talk anymore. First up, Michael James, here in the center of the table, is an activist, photographer, writer, and actor. He attended Lake Forest College and later Trinity College, and then a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship took him to Berkeley, where he did graduate work in sociology. There he was active in the free speech movement and became a member of Students for a Democratic Society, later becoming a national officer of SDS. While at Berkeley, he began doing community organizing in West Oakland and then moved to Chicago to work with uptown residents, many from the South, with the organization organization JOIN, Jobs or Income Now, Community Union. James went on to found the organization and newspaper Rising Up Angry, which ran from 1969 to 75, And in the early 70s, he began teaching a course at Columbia College called Organizing for Social Change. In that class, his ideas for community-based economic institutions evolved, 
1976, James co-founded the Heartland Cafe, a restaurant and community institution that serves good, wholesome food for the mind and body and continues to be an inspirational community institution. James co-hosts Live from the Heartland show on WLUV 88.7 in Chicago, and his photos have been shown at numerous galleries, and he has, a, he has a show for those of you in the Chicagoland area, opening this Friday at Adventureland Gallery, and it'll be up for the month of September. Is that, is that correct? Okay. He's currently at work on a book, Pictures from the Long Haul, a Photographic Memoir. Our next guest is Antonio Lopez. Born in Gary, Indiana, and raised in Chicago, Illinois, Antonio Lopez received his doctorate in Borderlands History at the University of Texas, El Paso. Dr. Lopez has written extensively on anti-poverty and anti-racist social movements in Chicago, including his dissertation, which focused on the Rainbow Coalition. Tonight, he will be providing perspective on the Young Lords, a Puerto Rican human rights movement, and part of the Rainbow Coalition. He has also contributed to human rights, environmental justice, and economic justice struggles in Chicago and on the U.S.-Mexico border. Formerly the executive director of the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization from 2013 to 16, Lopez now serves as their senior advisor. He's coordinated a membership for youth, a mentorship, excuse me, for youth program, or let me start over with that. He's coordinated a mentorship program for youth incarcerated at the Illinois Youth Center in St. Charles and contributed to the Chicago Grassroots Curriculum Task Force. He currently teaches courses for the Stern Center for Community-Based Service Learning at DePaul University and is a 2017 Social Justice News Nexus Fellow at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. His writings have been published in Breaching the Colonial Contract, Anti-Colonialism in the U.S. and Canada, by the, grass, the Chicago Grassroots Curriculum Task Force, and by the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership at Kalamazoo College. Next up is Stan McKinney, who is a member of the Illinois Black Panther Party from 1969 to 78. He has worked across the country in many branches and chapters of the party, for many branches and chapters for the party and the people. <coughs> These mistakes are all mine, not in the writing. <laughs> he was a bodyguard for, for the minister of self for the founder minister of self defense Huey P Newton in Oakland California and Bobby Rush the deputy minister of defense in Chicago. Stan has continued to work in the community today and in the spirit of the Black Panther Party, teaching martial arts to many youth across the city. He offers martial arts classes for free to communities such as Rogers Park, Uptown, Humboldt Park, and the near South Side, including the West Side of Chicago. He's a ninth degree black belt. And his message is ongoing, and his philosophy is intact. He is a hero and revolutionary for the people, and his gift and purpose of revolutionary multiculturalism is refined and pure. Hi Thurman is originally from Tennessee and now resides in Alabama. He is a southern migrant who settled in Chicago's uptown community in the 1960s at the age of 17. He became a community organizer, founding member of the Young Patriots Organization and Rainbow Coalition. His accomplishments include founder of the Emerald City, the first drug abuse program in Chicago's north side, co-founder of the Uptown People's Center of Northeastern Illinois University to recruit poor students to complete a college education, the founder of Blues to Bluegrass, a citywide organization that worked with musicians and artists to perform benefit programs for <coughs> grassroots organizations, and he has also worked as a gang intervention worker and social base director for Alternatives Youth Service Agency. He is presently working to reboot the Young Patriots and make their forgotten history available to everyone. 
And last but not least is our moderator, Brian Lovato. He is a visiting assistant professor here at Augustana in, pol in our political science department who works on social movements, identity, politics, and labor organizing. He's the author of the book, Democracy, Dialectics, and Difference, Hegel, Marx, and 21st Century Social Movements, and a founding editor of Abolition, a journal of insurgent politics. Join me in welcoming them all to the class. Okay, Right. Thank you, Claire. Um, thank you, Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, for hosting this. Um, so I just want to go around the table and have you all talk a little bit about your organizations. Um, Claire briefly mentioned each of them. But um, if you could talk about how you got involved in them and, um, and then perhaps also how you went from working with that particular organization to uh, building the Rainbow Coalition. So start with you, Stan. Okay, um, thank you for having me in particular. It's an honor to be here. Blessed to be here after going through what uh, I've gone through. Uh, I, it wouldn't be right for me to start uh, by acknowledging today as the birthday of Fred Hampton Sr., who was assassinated by the U.S. government. 1969, December 4th in Chicago, along with uh, Peoria. We had a Peoria chapter of the Black Panther Party, uh, Defense Captain Mark Clark. In addition, uh, the woman that's responsible for me being here, uh, which is my mom, it's her birthday. So her and Chairman <laughs> shares the same birthday. So. I guess to answer the question that was posed, uh, I, I joined the Black Panther Party in January of 1969. Um, and the motivating force for me joining the Black Panther Party, and I spoke with some of the some students earlier today, is that the conditions that existed in the community uh, on the west side of Chicago, uh, I think, precipitated that. Uh, some people, we say, join the party uh, because of different reasons, aspiration, inspiration, desperation. Well, I guess you could say mine was desperation. The conditions that existed in the black community on the west side at that time in the 60s is that, you know, if you were stopped, if you were African-American and you were stopped by police, uh, they would jump out on you. And back then, we used to call them pigs. The pigs rode six deep. Three in the front seat. Uh, they got the computers and all that stuff now. But back then, it was three in the front seat, three in the back. They would jump out, and they would commence to whooping you or either take all the bullets out of the gun and but one, and they spin it, the barrel. They call it spin the barrel, and they click, click, click. And that's how they got their joy. Amongst other things, if you were taken in to the police station for a minor offense, traffic, anything, you were tortured. Those same conditions exist today. Those, those same exact conditions exist today. There's a, an institution on the west side of Chicago called Holman Square. And Holman Square is an old building that was 
built by Sears and Roebuck, and we come to find out that uh, a lot of African-American youth are being uh, picked up in their communities, taken to this building, and the same tactics that are used that were used at Guantanamo Bay, waterboarding, uh, various torture tactics are being done right to this day. There's there's been many demonstrations and movements in terms of that. But it's it you know it's really I mean to be in this room and see as many people to come out um, under the auspices of the Rainbow Coalition and it's, it was a very fine concept and and we would not be here. Uh, none of the panelists would be here were it not for the uh, vision of Chairman Fred Hampton Sr. Um, uh, he is the one that, and, and we make no distinction about that, clearly that had the vision to put this coalition together. And some people say, well, the Panthers were under a lot of um, heat. We were. Uh, we sustained, there was 38 Panthers that were killed during the uh, from the inception of the organization, we were taken off the street, locked up. And as a matter of fact, there's still party members uh, that are serving time. There's one brother, uh, Jerry Odinga, who's serving 150 years. Okay, he was selling papers in front of our office on the west side of Chicago, and the, the FBI pulled up and hung a case on him. And he's, you can Google him right now. He's, he's serving 150 years, and we've been fighting that. So. The, the, those same conditions really exist today when you look at the shooting of Laquan McDonald and the many African-Americans throughout this country. When Huey Newton and Bobby Silts got together, they were law students and came up with the concept to develop the Black Panther Party. They came up with what was called the 10-point platform, and that platform basically spoke to uh, the oppressive conditions that people were subjected to in this country and still are. So when we, one of the uh, points, the 10 points, uh, number seven, spoke to police brutality. We want an end to police brutality and murder of black people in particular and all oppressed people across the world. And that applies today. It still exists that we're still dealing with police brutality. We're still dealing with the madness of a megalo war mangler who's, uh, who's in office today. Uh, so uh, many of the issues that the Panthers spoke of, uh, those, those conditions are uh, very prevalent today, uh, and we tried to address them as best as we could. You know, uh, we, we took a lot of repression, and uh, when you stand up against a government such as, as, as this government, uh, these are the types of repressions that caused uh, – the, uh, other, some of the other brothers that were part of the Rainbow Coalition to actually have to go underground, okay? And a lot of Panthers had to go uh, and leave this country. We had to go in exile uh, to keep from being uh, incarcerated on trumped-up charges. So uh, that, that the martial arts thing is something that I still do today. And I, I started uh, the martial arts before. When I came to the Panther Party, I was a martial artist, and I just continued and we got out in Oakland. We started a, a school, Oakland Community Learning Center, and we started martial arts, bringing kids in the, from the community to give them an alternative. So I still, I still uh, uh, incorporate that, and that's a part of uh, my regiment and my, my passions.
Thank you. My name is Michael James, and uh, it's good to be here. Uh, I was here once before in 1961. I think we uh, lost in a football game. I was playing for Lake Forest, and uh, Augustana, who were the NAIA champs, kicked our ass, as I recall. Um, I, had, I, uh, I grew up in a bourgeois town in Connecticut. I was born in New York City, and I, uh, my town was mostly white. There were towns uh, near us, Norwalk and Bridgeport, that had Puerto Ricans and black people. Um, I uh, was a Brooklyn Dodger fan, uh, born in 42. I went to my first game in 48 or 49. Jackie Robinson was my hero. Um, I ended up, uh, I was always a little bit of a rebellious guy. I was involved with Hot Rod Car Club. Uh, I think we were co-opted by the town, uh, you know, with safety checks and stuff. So the rebellion was channeled into uh, government and uh, civic responsibility. I ended up going to Lake Forest College. Uh, I intended to go in the Marine Corps, um, and I had signed up in the Platoon Leader Corps, and uh, a group of uh, scraggly kind of hippie beatnik types came through on the San Francisco to Moscow Peace March, and that turned me around a whole lot about war and bombs and those kind of things. I got a fellowship to, in the summer of 64, I worked in Uptown, which is where the Joint Community Union would be and where the Young Patriots came out of. It used to be mostly southern white. Uh, It's pretty mixed in a lot of ways. It's a rough-edged neighborhood. Um, And uh, I worked there in the summer, and then I went off to Berkeley. And at Berkeley, I was going to study sociology. I was going to be a sociologist instead of a minister. And uh, I uh, found a piece of paper on the ground. Mind you, the day I walked onto the campus, there was a police car with a guy named Jack Weinberg, and it's surrounded by students. Uh, The university had said that you couldn't uh, advocate for off-campus events. And most of the, a lot of people had come back from working in the uh, Mississippi summer 64, where there was a lot of voter registration. So it was really the wrong time for the administration to try to, try to clamp down on the uh, growing student activism. Um, I was uh, a participant in the free speech movement and uh, ended up getting arrested and hauled off to Santa Rita. But uh, during sitting around that police car, I found a piece of paper on the ground, and it said, build the interracial movement of the poor. And I was trying to figure out how you, through in sociology and conflict theory, how you took people who had disagreements and brought them together. Um, So I kind of, this captured my attention and my imagination. I wrote to SDS and said, hey, I want to be a part of this. What do I do? And they wrote back, well, you got to do it. And um, uh, some some people came through town uh, from the organization, and a group of us ended up going into West Oakland, uh, which is where the Panthers came out of. Um, this was in the summer of 65. Uh, the, uh, the war in Vietnam was escalating, and there was an awful lot of attention uh, to trying to stop the troop trains that were bringing these young guys with their heads shaved to ship them off to Vietnam. And I remember uh, uh, we sort of stuck it out for a while, but the, the action was not down in our neighborhood. I ended up um, running into a guy named Stokely Carmichael. Some of you may know him. He was from the Student Nonviolent Coordinator Committee, uh, which was the really cutting-edge, forefront black organization around voter registration and working in the South. And um, Stokely, whose name is, how do you say it, Seco Torre? Torre. I was at the Fillmore Auditorium at a benefit with uh, the Grateful Dead and the 
Quicksilver messenger service and the Jefferson airplane and people like that. And I remember talking to Stokely. That's all I really remember, saying I was going to go off and either work in Newark with a guy named Tom Hayden, uh, or in which was in a black neighborhood, or uh, with Rennie Davis in a white neighborhood in Chicago. And Stokely said, work with white people. We have a lot going on in the black community. We need a lot more in the white community. So I went off to Chicago. Um, <clears throat> I met young guys like Kai Thurman, his brother, uh, a lot of people. We had an organization that had already started uh, that was quite formidable. It, uh, uh, it had a um, – we had regular meetings. It had a, a welfare unit. It had a legal operation. We did uh, theater uh, that acted out, you know, the evil landlord discriminating against the tenants. Uh, and uh, we had a march on the Somerdale Police Station. I think you were on that. And uh, when that ended in 68, uh, before the Democratic Convention, Join kind of came to an end. Uh, out of Join came the Good Fellows, which became the Young Patriots. I went off and started a group called Rising Up Angry. And the way I got the name, I'll confess, we were of altered state. Um, in Yellow Springs, Ohio, uh, having a meeting about organizing and taking what we had done in Uptown and taking that to other Midwestern cities. And we were having this meeting, and we went into Yellow Springs to watch this movie called Wild in the Streets, made by the same people who made the FBI series. And um, in that movie, anyone over 30 was a sellout. Uh, but there was a song that went with it. It was, there's a new sun rising up angry in the sky. Uh, Max Frost and the Troopers. And so that's where we got the name. And there was a lot of activity going on in Chicago um, in a lot of neighborhoods. There was the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization. The Black Panther Party had started. The Young Lords had started. The Young Patriots were coming on. There were other groups. And um, <clears throat> we, uh, we, when we started Rising Up Angry, we started it as a paper to kind of educate, to liberate, and to build the organization. So we ran pa stories on the Panthers. We ran stories on the Young Lords. We ran stuff about Vietnam. Um, <clears throat> we ran stuff about women. And let me say that in all of these organizations that you see up here, there were really strong and powerful women who were members of that organization. And I know you're trying to get some for your next event. <clears throat> but it isn't like it was a guy thing. Not that there weren't issues of sexism and all that going on. But, um, you know, we were all challenged and we all grew at that time. Uh, Rising Up Angry lasted for a number of years. We had a free people's health center. We had that newspaper. We uh, got to work with guys who we met in the brig up at Great Lakes Naval Training Center. No, at Glenville Naval Air Station. Um, we did a lot of anti-war work at a legal program. Um, and we were in a lot of different neighborhoods. We weren't just in one place. And in all those places that we worked uh, in Chicago, as racist as Chicago has a rep for being and in many ways is, there are also a lot of places in the city where there's a lot of crossover. You have black Polish people. You have Polish Puerto Rican people. You have hillbillies mixed with all kind of people. I mean, it's really... Uh, it's, it's kind of wonderful in a lot of ways that people break down these lines. Um, I, um, Angry ended in uh, 75, 76, and I was teaching at Columbia College. And uh, I had uh, 
been kind of attracted to alternative communities like the the Hutterites and the uh, the Amanic colonies out in Iowa and New Harmony, Indiana. And I started thinking about ways to uh, how we developed an economy. If you read revolutionary theory, even read Chairman Mao Zedong, he talked about the need for an economy to provide jobs and you know commerce, etc. So I ended up going on to, into the restaurant business, which was a political restaurant. It's still there. I don't have. I only have a minority interest now, but um, <clears throat> I uh, I ended up teaching at Columbia College. I was, uh, and now I teach a little bit at DePaul. I want to say one thing in case I forget to say it later. Um, the Rainbow Coalition, um, really as small as it as it is, and it was, uh, was very inspirational. And in Chicago, there, were, there was a tradition of organizing. Some of you know about Saul Alinsky, uh, certainly labor movements and all that. Um, <clears throat> Chicago is, a, is an interesting town. And <clears throat> let me see where I'm going with that. But uh, what I wanted to say was that uh, I think that, and what I tell people a lot, that someday white people, the best thing that can happen to white people, or so-called white people, race is a bigger question, I think. But the best thing that white people can hope for is that someday they will be viewed in the world community as a minority that worked for the good of the whole. And I would say that for the United States, the best thing that we can hope for is that we are a nation viewed among other nations as a nation that works for the good of the overall community. Now, you all know we have a long way to go for that. So as much as we're going to talk about the history and the past and the, the kind of organizing in the neighborhoods, the day-to-day -day contact, talking to people, bringing them through their racism, through their sexism, through their whatever it is, you know, um, now is the time. And, and it's not going to be us. It's going to be mostly you. Uh, you and people like you everywhere and people much more diverse in many ways. Um, but if the future of humanity and what goes on in this planet really depends on how we can bring people together and stand up to the, uh, the fascist pigs, as we used to call them. <laughs> is what it is. All right. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, first of all, let me, let me uh, send a very warm thank you to all of you for taking uh, the time out of your lives. Um, I know all of you are very busy. We've got a lot going on and probably other regions in, the, in this country that we're thinking about. And uh, so I just want to thank you for taking the time and, and, and sharing that with us here. I also want to thank my fellow uh, panelists here, who I've just, uh, for a long time now, have been, uh, been such an inspiration to me and I admire. And uh, I want to, I, we lost, uh, I thank you for reminding us about Chairman Fred's birthday, uh, who we always hold in our heart and in our memories. Um, and uh, and I, I recently lost a, uh, a friend and colleague in the in the EJ movement, and so I'm a little somber. So before I forget, I didn't get a chance to thank him for his work. I just want to thank these. And can we give the, these guys a real big, big, warm, warm, uh, you know? Um, I'm a yeah, I'm I'm a little younger, and uh, and when times get tough, I, I have to turn back to these histories to kind of ground myself. And if I don't get a chance, I just want to thank all of you personally for the work. I want to thank you for, for the organizing work. all yeah. piles of stuff into a yeah. yeah. beautiful folder. But, uh, yeah, so I'm a little sensitive right now, but I'm, you know, I've got, I want to throw that out there. But I'm also uh, very honored to, uh, 
to be asked by Chacha Jimenez, who was the uh, one of the founders and the chairman of the Young Lords organization. And Chacha was unable to make it this evening. He really wanted to be here. Uh, and I was really honored when he gave me a call and said, you know, Antonio, can you uh, make the trip uh, and, and speak on behalf of the Young Lords organization, which I was, uh, which is kind of, you know, if you know a little bit of that history, it can be a little overwhelming, but but I'll do my best. And if you know Chacha too, he's a character, and uh, he's a hard dude to emulate. So I'm not going to even try to. Uh, I'm not going to try to do You're that. You're good, man. You go on your own. No, no, I'm not. I'm not going to try to do that. Uh, but only to say that, uh, yeah, you know, Chacha is just uh, one of these, one of these amazing uh, uh, revolutionary leaders that we have to really hug and, and give our respect to, and salute to. And I think if he was here, I think he would start out by saying, you know, if we really wanted to grasp the, the Young Lords organization and then kind of think in and bring in the, the, the original Rainbow Coalition, he would start with Puerto Rico. And I think he would start with really the experiences of, of uh, colonization, the experiences of U.S. imperialism and empire in Puerto Rico. Uh, he would tell you about, um, you know, the devastation really that was wrought uh, in the island for, you know, many, many years and that eventually brought his family to migrate from Puerto Rico first to Boston and then eventually to Chicago. And then in Chicago, he would talk about how the Puerto Rican community, his family, got displaced multiple times before ending up in, uh, in Lincoln Park. Uh, so I think, first of all, is to recognize that the Young Lords organization, and again, I'm, I'm holding my remarks more to the Chicago, uh, narrowing down to the Chicago Young Lords organization, because the Young Lords organization was in Milwaukee and New York and, and a lot of other places, um, but, uh, but I'm going to confine my remarks to the Chicago Young Lords Organization. Um, the Young Lords Organization, founded in Chicago, which is really important to, uh, to highlight, uh, it, it, it is, uh, needs to be regarded as, as one of the organizations alongside leaders like Albizu Campo, Lolita Lebron, um, you know, if you've been keeping track of the news recently, Oscar Lopez was released uh, as a political prisoner. Um, uh, and this long list of, of uh, people from Puerto Rico that were fighting for the liberation of the island, that were that they may well while they may have had political differences, while they may be operating from maybe different approaches, all of them, for many many years, have wanted the freedom of the Puerto Rican people, and uh, the Young Lords Organization um, deserves to be highly regarded in the history of, of the Puerto Rican liberation struggle. And so I think if Chacha were here, he would he would remind us that uh, there's a reason why uh, the the slogan of the Young Lords Organization was "Tengo Puerto Rico en mi corazón." Right? I have Puerto Rico in my heart. It was it was very firmly rooted in the long and rich history of liberation in Puerto Rico, which actually goes back if you go out to the Spanish, goes back hundreds of years. But now, currently, Puerto Rico still is in a colonial condition um, because of, of uh, is still in the yokes dealing with the yokes of imperialism. And uh, we have to uh, think about ourselves, uh, think about Puerto Rico as uh, still needing its freedom and the Puerto Rican people still fighting for its freedom. Uh, so much love and props to the Puerto Rican people who are still struggling uh, to this day, uh, like all other oppressed people still struggling to this day. Uh, and then I think Chacha, if, uh, if I'm, if I'm, you know, I've seen him a few times, a few times over the years and got a chance to, to hang out with him, I think he would then, uh, he would talk about Lincoln Park, uh, uh, Lincoln Park, but he would talk about um, you know, the, the dynamic community, Latino community, that uh, developed and emerged in Lincoln Park. And if you go to Lincoln Park, anybody been to Lincoln Park in Chicago? Um, if you go there now, it's really hard to imagine 
that there was a, that there was a, uh, this is, was the home of the young lords. And this was uh, where actually this really dynamic working class community, people like Muddy Waters used to play there. Uh, it was like this uh, really, really dynamic working class barrio there that had emerged in Lincoln Park. Um, and, uh, and he would talk to you about how the Puerto Rican people, you know, migrated into this community, you know, again, pushed out of the island uh, because of the devastation, the lack of economic opportunity, uh, pushed into some of the hardest paying jobs in Chicago, finding housing, finding places to live in, in Lincoln Park, and really out of the blood, sweat, and tears, building a community there in Lincoln Park. Right in a, in, a, in a hard city. This is Chicago. This is a tough, tough place, a tough city. Um, and and in there, he would talk about. Uh, he talks about his parents, right? Really experiencing some of the hardships as uh, as Puerto Rican people there in Chicago. Some of the humilities that unfortunately a lot of poor people and working class people had to endure. Um, and how uh, his 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 uncles and his parents that generation formed kind of mut- uh, they're called mutualistas or mutual mutual aid kind of societies whether it was through the churches they tried to kind of help each other with resources whether it's funerals or or different things like that this is talking about the 40s and 50s right um, but by the time in the late 50s and again you're thinking about a city that again experienced massive deindustrialization the loss of jobs the loss of economic opportunity. Um, and, and, then, and then all of the, um, you know, the, the white ethnic racism that one can imagine um, there. And, and out of that emerged the Young Lords, which at that time was actually a street organization. It had started actually out as a, as a basically, if you were a, a, a young person in Puerto Rican, you were fighting Italian dudes coming home from school. You were fighting, you know, you had to protect yourself uh, in the neighborhoods there in Chicago, uh, which I still had to do in the 90s. Um, and... Um, um, that's how the Young Lord started as a, as a way for um, young people there, young Puerto Ricans there in Lincoln Park to come together uh, and it emerged and, and Chacha was a young man at that time and had become involved in that and the Young Lord's organization. However, going through the 60s, you know, this dynamic, dynamic political period, again, we're just a couple hours away from I don't think it's an overstatement to say Chicago really is one of the most political places on the, on the yes. face of the planet. <laughs> Literally on the face of the planet. There's a reason that the labor movement started there. There's a reason that you had the largest Black Panther Party there. The reason that, you know, uh, all of these organizations, I mean, Chicago was a, was a, is a dynamic uh, political location. Uh, I, and, and I'm a Chicago guy. I'm just, I'm not trying to overstate that, but I really believe that. And, um, and, and at that time, um, the Young Lords organization was, you know, starting to get politicized, but something happened that kind of switched the, uh, kind of changed things. One, you had you had all these urban removal programs. The idea there was that Lincoln Park would be the first inner city suburb, right? That was the idea, and and so you had problems because you had all this, this working class poor people there that you had to remove, basically. Whites too. Yeah, and, and, and we a lot. Were yeah, fighting each other. Yeah, and, uh, and and so the Lincoln Park was really, I mean, you want to call it like kind of ground zero or, or really intense place where urban removal uh, was was targeted. Because of its proximity to the, the business district, the, the central Lake business front. district, the lakefront, all these kinds of things, and so you had that going on. Um, you had these ethnic issues going on. You know these ethnic conflicts going on. The young lords is coming up in that, and then you have this really powerful uh, uh, political scene in Chicago that's happening. And uh, but something actually, you know, this this, this relation. I want to get to the relationship with the Black Panther Party, the Young Lord, uh, and the Rainbow Coalition. 
But really, when I've talked to, Ch- to Ch- Chacha, he was doing a lot of work. But what flipped the switch and really politicized the Young Lords organization was the police murder of a young lord named Manuel Ramos. Yeah. And Manuel Ramos was killed on May 4th, 1969. An off-duty police officer was um, uh, just at his home, and there was a party, and some guys were just hanging out in the front door. And the, the off-duty, police officer off-duty, his name is James Lamb, walked up to you know, He was drunk. He was drunk and walked up, and he shot uh, Manuel Ramos in the eye. He basically killed He shot him in the, in the face and killed Manuel Ramos and shot another young lord. And Chacha was having kind of a hard time politicizing people and getting things going at that time. And the police murder, this was a murder of a, of a young lord. Again, you got to remember, these are young people, young people that were doing all this work, like yourselves, like your ages. And imagine a police officer shooting your best, one of your best friends, one of your best people, uh, cold-bloodedly. And that right there really flipped the switch on the Young Lords organization, the murder of, of and if you look at the historical record, after that, mm-hmm. you know, you see all these examples of people coming together, the original Rainbow Coalition, marches on behalf of Manuel Ramos, the takeover of the McCormick Theological Seminary, uh, you know, on and on and on. And one could go on, and that's, I call it the Rainbow Summer, because that summer of 1969 was hot. I mean, I don't you know. Vicious, yes. Yeah, that was hot, right? And, um, and so uh, I think you would point to that. Uh, I want to point, if I have time, just for one more last little thing, and I'm sure we can get more into it. Um, but um, uh, one of the questions that I thought I had to think about was, you know, well, man, why, did, why was it the young, there was a lot, you know, Chicago, there's a lot of organizations, but why was it that the young lords and the young patriots were the ones that just, like, grab, you know, caught on rather quickly with the Black Panther Party? Like, how did that happen? And again, uh, it wasn't, I think it does a disservice not only to the young lords and the young patriots, but also, also to the Black Panther Party, um, if you try to make it seem like people got indoctrinated or people were, were manipulated into this, like, you know, militant politics. The Black Panther Party had a recognition of self-determination. Yes. That, that, that concept of solidarity, right? How do you build solidarity but respect and recognize self-determination was the genius of the Black Panther Party and its leadership, something that we still don't get right today. Yep. We make many, many mistakes over. I see it in my work all the time. We still don't get that contradiction right today. And was something that, in the respect for self-determination, it was a recognition that people in Puerto Rico, what they had experienced, their lived experiences of migration, of being racialized, of being beaten in Lincoln Park, of dealing with poverty in Uptown, dealing with all the things that people were dealing with in Uptown, the kitchenettes, you know, the roaches, the rats, the poverty, the homelessness, right? the humiliations that people were visited upon on a daily, day-to-day basis, they didn't need to be convinced that hard that self of what the Black Panther Party was talking about. They were readily able to grasp that. Now, what they did, there was some work that had to be done, was how we get beyond this race thing, right? And the Black Panther Party, the genius of the Black Panther Party in shaping that was amazing. And But what I wanted to say was that the reason why this is important is because we can't forget that many people back then were really against. There was actually not a lot of people that had a lot of confidence in this type of coalition building. There were people that were actually saying, no, we got to be racially separate. Or there was a lot of liberalism going on, right? That was, uh, you know, it, this was hard work 
to try to put together this kind of original rainbow coalition vision that recognized solidarity and self-determination. And the reason why it was profound to me was because it actually represented a reconnection with what was going on in the, in the world globally, with the revolutionary movements in the, in, around the world who had long before here in the United States had solved that issue of self-determination and solidarity. Going back to the Bandung Conference, going back to the Tricontinental Conferences, the Cuban Revolution, Ghana, right? The Black Panther Party represented a reconnection. It reconnected the, the, the U.S. revolutionaries back with the brothers and sisters around the world. And the Rainbow Coalition in Chicago, again, Chicago is a political place. It represented kind of the, a reconnection of that. And that's why it was so threatening. Um, so I'll stop there. I, have, I could go on and on. You know, these guys can go on and on too, but I'll stop there. Wow. I don't know if I can follow that or not. Uh, I'm Hi Thurman. Thank you so much for, uh, for allowing me here. Uh, I'm the current chairman of the Young Patriot Organization, in which we've rebooted. And we're starting to uh, organize chapters. We have seven new chapters at this point. Um, mostly in the South, that's where the battleground is for, you know, white supremacists uh, there. So we're fighting very hard down in Alabama right now. Uh, which is the home of our Confederate Attorney General of the United States. And, uh, you know, so he's fighting us also. But, you know, I want to thank you for allowing me to be here and, and, and my brother's here. We've, you know, we've known each other for a long time. We've been through a lot of struggles. Uh, but what makes a hillbilly do something like this? Um, I would have to say that um, the reason that a lot of us got involved in the movement as far as the uh, the young patriots is because we were tired of fighting poverty. Uh, and most of us, uh, you know, there are f over 40,000 uh, hillbillies uh, who were living in the uptown area. And it was, it was just gruesome. I mean, this, this living conditions there, rats and roaches, and you didn't have that. You had the cops beating the hell out of you all the time. You had you know, absentee landlords who just didn't care. They wouldn't heat your building. You know, the, the streets were all glass. There was no grass anywhere hardly. Um, and, uh, you know, right on top of that, we were had to face with uh, the, the, the problems of Richard J. Daley, the mayor. We call him King Richard I, uh, who was just a brutal son of a bitch. That's the only thing that I can say. But, uh, you know, I want to read you... Uh, a poem here which comes out of a book. Uh, this is the book that actually sparked this exhibit. Uh, I, had, I had gone to uh, talk to um, Daniel Tucker, a friend of mine. He, he's also a, uh, his family migrated from Kentucky. And uh, this was taken from four chapbooks that the Young Patriots published back in the 60s and 70s um, called Time of the Phoenix. And it's, uh, it's a gathering of, of songs and poems and writings of poor people in the uptown area. And there were some students in there, too. But, you know, and, and uh, uh, it was lost because there wasn't enough. You know, we were, we were blacklisted. We couldn't get any, you know, really get any publications out. So um, we did get this book finally published. And um, we want to thank uh, Daniel Tucker, who took it on as a project. Uh, because he really saw the significance of organizing your own, going into your own community, because 
Stokely, Michael, uh, Stokely Carmichael had that directive where he said the white people should go in to organize the white people. Don't try to organize the black people. Go into your own communities because that's where the racism is and fight for the against racisms. And, and that's what a lot of us did. I mean, you know, Mike, uh, uh, Mike and I have known each other for, you know, 45 years or something like that. Uh, Mike, uh, I got a lot of respect for Mike. He's one of my mentors. But he's done a lot, a lot, and really uh, uh, I appreciate him. And, uh, but I want to read uh, a poem from here that was written by Bill Preacher Manfestman, who was also uh, uh, a young patriot. It's called Hillbilly Harlem. If you travel Route 41 from Nashville to Chicago, you better know what you've done. Because there on the north side's a sight to behold. 40,000 hillbillies shivering in the cold. Just behind the Gold Coast, right next to Lakeshore Drive, is where the people from the country arrive. They find it hard going on. They labor pay. But the poor old hillbilly can't have his say. From the mines of Kentucky and the farms of Tennessee, he comes to the city to save his family. But plowing ain't so easy on concrete and stone. And the jails of Chicago become the hillbilly's home. You've heard of hillbilly heaven from songers young and old, but there's still a story they haven't told of uptown Chicago and the people who, sh who survive in hillbilly Harlem through the countless tears they've cried. Um, and that tells the story of a lot of people that uh, migrated into the Chicago area. Uh, I came there when I was 17 years old, uh, trying to escape the poverty of a small town in Tennessee, which was being, uh, uh, you know, mechanized and, and jobs were, there were no jobs there. I started working in the field when I was about three years old, you know, so there are a lot, and I'm, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that for any sympathy, but that is actually, you, if you looked at those times, you'd see a lot of families out there working in the, in the fields just trying to survive. Uh, we would pool our money at the end of the day, and uh, that's how we would eat. Uh, so we were very poor. Uh, so when it came time to go to Chicago, I decided, well, I'm gone. You know, and I was 17 at that time, and I went into the uptown community, and I thought, well, maybe this is a chance. But, you know, I was there probably less than two weeks, and I got stopped by two cops. And uh, once they found out I had a southern accent, uh, and I'll get graphic here. We're all adults. Um, they said, oh, no, not another fucking hillbilly. I said, why don't you go home and fuck your mom or your dog or your pig? You know, whatever you guys fuck down there, just, just get out of Chicago. And that was their thinking. That's how they treated us. You know, after they proceeded to push me out of the car and kick me a few times. But, you know, it's just that's, that's the way they were in Chicago and um, – it wasn't unusual for them to just come down the street and just pick somebody and start beating on them. Uh, so there was a, Mike had mentioned a march on the police station, um, on the Somerdale police station. Now, if you look it up, it's called the Great Somerdale Scandal in 1959, where this police station was actually busted uh, for stolen goods, and they, or they would go and they actually... Uh, yeah, <laughs> they uh, uh, they would get these burglars and make them work for them. So if somebody had a uh, you know a, a nice little cookie out, they'd have to have somebody go steal the meat for them. 
you know, if they had some uh, occasion coming up, they'd have them go out and steal uh, this stuff for them, break into these businesses. Uh, because if they didn't, they would be threatened. You know, they'd go to jail. And they would do the same thing with a lot of the, the people in the neighborhood, these uh, these young guys, they'd have trumped up charges on them. They'd say, well, we we're not going to. Uh, we're not going to uh, serve this on you, but this is what you got to do. Um, and so it was just terrible. Uh, the living conditions were terrible. So there was a group of of guys that got together, and they were in, actually in a gang at first um, called the Peacemakers. And uh, But some of them got associated with Join and became the Goodfellas. And Join actually uh, taught a lot of organizing and political ideology to a lot of people. And so what actually came out of that, this group and Mike uh, actually ran Eldridge Cleaver and Peggy Terry, who was a, um, a poor welfare mother for president and vice president of the United States. And, of course, 1968. And, and you know, if you remember, Eldridge Cleaver was with the Black Panther Party. And they were running against uh, George Wallace because of his racist views. And I think that was one of the, the – I think that sparked something in Chicago at that time that you would see uh, a, a black man with the Black Panthers and you see a, a poor uh, a welfare mother running together against racism. And because Chicago was one of the most segregated – Cities in the in the world, actually, I would say, Mayor Daley. He he actually designed they designed the city that way. But anyway, um, as, as time went on, the um, the good fellas, um, the the got drafted. A lot of them got drafted. A lot of them left town because of you know police brutality, uh, and uh, that left a few people, a few guys around. And so we, we actually we, we started the Young Patriots, and uh, we were recognized by um, the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords uh, who saw that our struggles in Uptown were uh, pretty much similar to their struggles, uh, that we were fighting against racism. And, but one thing that was different, we wore the Confederate flag, and uh, that was kind of unheard of, you know, with working in a coalition of, with the blacks people. And uh, what we would do is we would take that flag, uh, wear it on our, our uh, jackets sometime, and we'd go into the bars and talk to people about it. Um, but, of course, we were growing at the same time also. It wasn't that we were these great ideology organizers. You know, we came from a very racist background. We came from a, a state, and I came from a state that's, you know, very big in uh, white supremacy. And uh, so we had a lot to overcome. But with people like, uh, you know, the, the Joint Community Union and uh, uh, the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, you know, they, they worked with us, actually, and they taught us a lot. Uh, we were political to begin with, because of a lot of uh, movements that were in the South, uh, we had a lot of people had, had been in the uh, the coal mine, uh, coal mine union, uh, you know, the uh, textiles, agriculture, 
you know, and John Brown. They knew who John Brown was and others. So um, it was, we were kind of ripe for organizing, but we were just a group of kids. We were like, you know, I was 17, 18 at the time. Um, I don't know, Chairman Fred was, what, 21, something like that? He was assassinated. When he was assassinated. But I'm, I remember asking uh, when, I, when I talked to Fred, I said, you know, why in the world would you even want to be around us, you know, with this flag, with uh, the background that we come from? We've been your oppressor. We've been your killer. You know, we've murdered your people. And his statement to me was, hey, I can see through that because I see the revolution out there. And that's the kind of man he was. He, he really believed in a revolution. And he believed that the Rainbow Coalition was the revolution. And so do I. But it was, and that's why it was cut short. Um, so a lot of respect to, uh, to him on his birthday and your mother. And we also have one of our co-founders who are also, he's very sick, and I don't think he's going to make it through the day. But uh, these are people who gave up a lot of their time, a lot of their lives, you know, just to try to make a difference. And when people say that young people can't do it, well, they can. If people say old people can't do it, they can. You know, they just don't let moss grow on your butt, you know. <laughs> just get up and do it. So um, anyway, um, what we're doing now, uh, we've revised the um, – the Young Patriots, and we now have about seven chapters across the country, working very hard in Alabama, um, you know, there, Arkansas, uh, Washington State, Chicago, uh, North Carolina. So we're, we're beginning to move, and, and we're also working with other organizations. One of them is called Redneck Revolt. Uh, this organization, they, they were inspired by the Young Patriots, uh, and if you remember in Charlottesville, uh, where the church, uh, Cornell West was in a church, uh, and he was being threatened by the uh, white supremacists and the Nazis, well, it was, it was the redneck revolt and some of the young patriots that surrounded that church because they were armed. Uh, they were all armed, and that's, that's really what protected them in that church. So, But anyway... Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you all so much. Um, I think we've got about half an hour of scheduled time left. So rather than ask all the questions that I really want to ask you all, I want to turn it over to the audience. And um, okay. And Claire's going to do that. And then you can do the mics. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if you guys had any, like, advice for people who are like like college age who wants to, who want to go out there and like speak up against hate groups that might be a threat and stuff like that i don't know and then they might be like too afraid to so do you guys have any like tips or advice for how to do that what do you have uh, i mean are there wait, other wait. organizations around that's doing that like yeah Yeah. Well, maybe you're the voice they need. You know, maybe you're the one that needs to go do it since you're raising that question. And that's where to start. Um, you know, don't 
don't wait. Go out and do it. You know, and as a, as a good friend of mine, Bobby Lee, who was a Panther who passed away recently, said to me, he said, if you want to see a change in your community, you've got to be that change. You know, you can't wait for someone else to go out and, and make that change. But if you have the – it could be your calling. It could be, you know, what you think you're supposed to do because obviously these guys here, it's somehow I guess it's in their DNA because they don't know who would put up with all this stuff all these years and still be doing it, you know. So, And you can have a lot of influence over a lot of people, you know. So that's – I would find a organization and – if you don't like it, start another one. <laughs> you know? I think one of the most difficult questions always is uh, people say, well, what can I do? You know, and really thinking of what to tell you. Uh, I think part of it is you want to uh, – well, from my own experience, I read a number of biographies of people, you know, people who were in the Communist Party, civil rights stuff, and just kind of got ideas, uh, you know, from how they lived their life and what they did. The other thing is that you're not going to, you know, necessarily find a big group of people uh, that you go to. And you, I mean, I used to use the example, whether it's the best example or not, but, you know, it wasn't a whole lot of people who started the Cuban Revolution. I mean, a bunch of them, there were more than the 12 that were in the mountains, but they got wiped out, and it was a small group. And I, I remember a guy in SDS named Carl Whitman who died many, many years ago, but I remember he, the story of him going, and he was in Swarthmore College, and he'd knock on the people's doors, and he'd introduce himself. And he'd tell them what they, he thought and just try to talk to them. And, you know, you probably have a couple of close friends, all of you do, you know, and uh, who you think in some kind of uh, unified way. And, uh, you know, you might want to be talking to each other now and making plans, doing reading, investigate what's going on. Uh, there, there are not a lot. There are, you know, there's some government programs. There's a, America something where people go into neighborhoods. It's like the local Vista. AmeriCorps. Yeah, AmeriCorps. I mean, some of that is a good way to start. Wet your, your feet, uh, so to speak, and you'll meet plenty of other people over time. But uh, it's really just kind of investigate and uh, get inspiration where you can. Uh, whether that be hearing guys and women from the movement talk or whether it be reading about it, uh, watching movies. Uh, you know, just you, you, you've got a lot of power and you've got a lot uh, that you can give. And, you know, you'll discover that if you haven't already. So, you know, you want to check out what's going on. I don't know what people read. I don't know if you read radical papers. I don't know what those are out there, even the mainstream stuff, though it's important to, to every day read the New York Times or read the Guardian that, from England or with the, maybe with some local papers. But just so you're kind of up on it, you catch little things, and, um, you know, you'll find a spark at some point that's going to lead you somewhere. I don't know if you can, anyone else can give it a, a more direction. Well, we, I, as I stated, I joined the Black Panther Party at the age of 15, okay? Um, we always we had a slogan slogan that we always said youth make the revolution. You 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 have to get involved and get in where you fit in. I mean, if you have my 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 belief and my issue was stopping the pigs on the west side of Chicago from stumping a mud hole in my butt. I became I started reading at at a young age Lenin Marx, 
do your research. Really, I, I tell young people, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Okay, one of the things, one of the things, if you notice, uh, from what you, you're hearing constantly, the Black Panther Party already established a temper plate in terms of organizing, bringing people together. Do research. If you do your research, you'll come up, you'll come up with concrete, concrete solutions in terms of tactically which way you want to go. But you got to do your research. I mean, after a certain point, I knew that the Black Panther, because there was a period before we had to go through political education. So there was a period, a six-month period of political education before you could actually be a party member. So putting up with that, and then, you know, I developed that voracious appetite for reading, learning, and before you know it, I was in there and went everywhere. So, yeah. All right, I'll say one more thing. Um, I think that organizing is the key. I mean, we have to start talking about how do you organize people. Uh, and, you know, it's not just movement where we all are going to go to the demonstration. It's what do we do after that. And um, I think that the path forward is a combination of politics, like electoral politics, and movements outside of politics that push politicians. And I think that... Uh, to be quite frank, I think that, that 2018 is going to be a real crucial year and that I would encourage people, uh, while they're reading about other stuff, going to other demonstrations, to get involved, uh, whether it's here or some other places during the election. We need to get rid of the governor in the state of Illinois. And we, uh, we need to get, uh, you know, it would be great to have more Congress people. I know you got Sherry Bustos here. You used to have Lane Evans, who I knew. Um, so you got sort of progressive, liberal to the left, I think, a little bit. Um, but I would say that people – there's also a DSA chapter, Democrats uh, – what's it stand for? And, uh, you know, some people may think they're not radical enough or whatever, but that's probably a good start. you got a council member in this town who is from DSA. Uh, not too many ha towns have that. You know, that's a start. And find out what the, the kind of the progressive Democrats are doing. And as much as some of the people would say that, you know, voting can be a sellout or working with the Democrats is a sellout, you know, you don't have to get sick, sucked in hook, line, and sinker. But that is what's going on right now. Uh, and we have to build movements that push them or even do something different down the line. But also I think we have to have a foot in that, that little circle right now too. So – there's probably plenty to do here um, and across the border in Iowa and where they have two Republican senators. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. mix up some politics with movement building. Yeah, I'll say one other thing about the Rainbow Coalition that hasn't, that hasn't been said yet. Uh, a lot of people didn't think it would work. And, and with all the COINTELPRO of the FBI and, and all the repression that came down on on the leadership of the Rainbow Coalition. It still went on, it, it's politics still lived on uh, to get the first black mayor elected in the city of Chicago. Harold Washington. Harold Washington. Uh, Bobby Rush, who was uh, a Black Panther, was elected to congressman, and he's still a congressman. And that brought somebody named Barack Obama to Chicago uh, because he was interested in those politics, and he, he actually ran against... Uh, 
uh, he rushed and lost. <laughs> and, and so the next time he's running for anything, he's running on the Rainbow Coalition politics. And there is a book called From the Bullet to the Ballot that explains some of that, uh, where it, it traces those politics all the way from Chicago to the White House. Let me, I want to throw real quick. After Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were assassinated, Chicago has always been a Democratic stronghold. After the assassination of Chairman Fred and Mark Clark, it was the first time in electoral politics that the, it sent a message to the Daily Machine. There was a Republican, Barnard Carey, who was voted in as state's attorney behind Edward Vice Lord Hanrahan, who was a state's attorney that sent his 14 police under the guides of the Illinois Bureau of Investigation and the FBI to uh, assassinate uh, Fred Hampton. So that, that changed Chicago politics. That changed the bloodshed of, of Chairman Fred changed Chicago politics forever. And it opened up the door for the whole political climate that exists um, uh, today, as a matter of fact, Harold Washington never would have been elected uh, mayor. None of the progressive candidates, Helen Schiller, uh, Bobby Rush, Timmy Evans, uh, Gutierrez, Louis Gutierrez, um, Chewy, none of those progressive uh, aldermen that uh, uh, rode the Harold Washington coattail. That was a movement. And actually it started, it started in Oakland, California when Huey and Bobby said, we're throwing our hats into the political arena. Bobby Sills ran for mayor. Uh, Lane Brown ran for uh, uh, assemblyman. Uh, but throughout the history of the party, uh, as, as High said, Eldridge Cleaver, who was the uh, Minister of Information and the early inceptions of the party, ran for, and I think Huey ran for congressman also. So the, the electoral politics, but I want to real quick tell you, real quick, thing that happened that really was an eye-opener for me, and this happened. I was working with uh, Slim Coleman and Helen Schiller in the Uptown community, and this was during the time that Harold was mayor. I had gotten into it with some guys, uh, uh, two fellows that were skinheads by the name of Randy Price and Jack Quinn, and I whooped these guys up. <laughs> So what they did, I didn't realize that they had the police in their hip pocket. So they send the police to my apartment. I'm, 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 getting, I'm in the shower, and my bathroom door gets kicked in. They didn't kick in the front door. No search warrant, nothing. They literally had half of the precinct to raid my apartment, uh, take my firearms, and take me in bounced me around from police station. I must have went to maybe like six different police stations. Okay? Um, when Slim Coleman got the word that I had been arrested, Slim called the fifth floor. And this shows you political power. Harold Washington, the mayor at that time, made one phone call. Those, those police brought me in steak dinner, lobster, uh, oh, they brought, they, this is serious. They brought every, every gun. 
They counted the ammunition. They overgave me ammunition. Please take my badge number. Let the mayor know. Let the mayor know it was me. They brought, when they, when, when they released me from Cook County Jail, they brought me to City Hall. You must be an important guy because you, we were ordered to bring you, bring you to City Hall. And the, the statement that Harold made to the police department was this here. If he spit on the street, don't you fuck with him no more. That, that was political power. I mean, police were coming from everywhere. Oh, please, take my badge number. Let the mayor know. They, I mean, and, and then what, what we did behind that, after we realized that the skinheads had the, that particular uh, district, which I think was um, 20th, uh, Addison and, um, I think it was Addison and uh, Addison would have been Halston. 18th and 19th. Okay, well, 20th was where on uh, uh, 20th was uh, Foster. Was on Foster Avenue. Foster, yeah, Ravenswood. Yeah. Yeah, and then okay. they, the new one is up in. Right so what there. Harold did was Harold flipped the script. Harold took the he took the district from north of uh, the 46th Ward at that time. Brought those guys in and then switched those other guys. So they lost their. Um, they lost their political clout with the uh, police department, and ultimately, uh, the the, uh, the the officers that kicked my door, and I ended up suing them. But that's the that's the that's political power, political power. I mean, I they treated me initially. I was they kept bouncing me around from station to station, but when that call came from the fifth floor, that was a game changer. I mean, them guys came in with stakes on the plates, sir. I, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll be br- real brief to your question. I think one thing is, um, you know, find uh, someone, whether historically or current, that you admire. So, like, somebody like Peggy Terry. Mm-hmm. Uh, read about Peggy Terry. Um, find these leaders that, that, that you somehow connect with, whether it's from your background or whatever it is. Study them. Uh, I think what Stan's talking about, it, you have to do a lot of political education. You've got to get your training. There might be an organization that's already doing that work. And, and you just need to figure out how to plug in with them. Because uh, there's a lot of problems when people get quickly politicized and then go out there, yeah. and, uh, and that can create a lot of problems too. So it's about doing that research and, 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 uh, and studying who you're up against. But find that person historically uh, who you connect with, and that can always pull you through some tough things. The other thing that I always try to talk to people is that, you know, it's amazing people that want to go out there and fight. Hand at, you know, not everybody's built that way to go do that kind of work. And that's okay. For those people, we got to give them a lot of love and support that are right there on the front lines, that direct work. But not everybody has to do that. You can support that kind of work in a lot of different ways. So if you know, if you're good at uh, fundraising, if you're good at talking, if you're good at communication, if you're good at art, if you're good at a lot of different things, you can bring those skills to bear and still help that common struggle because hate is every. This country is built on violence and hate. We, and uh, it's, it's, just, it's just the reality. And, and you can also wage that struggle even here on your campus. You can wage that struggle in whatever different place it is. You don't have to think that unless I'm that one person, you know, fighting a Nazi that has, a, you know, right there, that's the, only, that's the only embodiment of that. The other danger of that, too, and I think this is something that, that the Rainbow Coalition history helps us with, is that, you know, we have to, you know, it's not just these nasty racist bigots that is, that is the only type of racism we're up against. When we're dealing with the war on poverty, the model cities programs, the urban removal programs, the environmental injustices, that is hate and violence, right? 
that is mass incarceration, that is hate and violence. Prisons. You know, prisons, all these things. So if you want to fight against hate, there's many ways you can fight against hate. Um, and it's about you just be having that honest conversation with yourself. And if you're motivated to help out and participate, um, there is, there's definitely, and then we got to educate a lot. A lot of our people, are st there's still a lot of educational work we got to do. And you can, that's fighting hate to me. If you're educating somebody, that's fighting hate right there because, you know, that's the first thing that hate, fertile ground for hate is a lot of ignorance. And so we still got a lot of work to you do. You know, we don't hear a lot about the prison stuff, organizing. There was, back in the days of the Panthers, and there was a lot of uh, activity in prisons. This prison thing is out of control, the privatization of prisons. Think about black people being slaves, and then they go into the prison system. Yep. I mean, it's a direct line, yep. and it's tied together. Uh, Peggy Terry, the, the name has come up a lot. Just so if anyone wants to find out more about Peggy, uh, she's in one of Studs Terkel's books, and she's also in, uh, there's a movie about uh, people who came from the 40s. She's in this book. Um, my, I'm going to share one memory I have of Peggy. We were, uh, we had, it was after joining, we were running Peggy for vice president with the peace, with Eldridge Cleaver on the peace and freedom ticket. And we used it as a way to go into new communities uh, in other cities. We were in uh, uh, Davenport one time. I mean, we were, uh, it, we, we did a lot of stuff, but we were in a parking lot, in a Kroger parking lot in Louisville visiting the Southern Conference Educational Fund people, the Bradens, some old line lefties who had been organizing for years. And there was a, a small crowd, and the next thing I know, we, Peggy and I are up there singing, We Shall Overcome. And we had a little band of local people, and there was a, a small crowd, and there were these other people who came on the scene, the cops disappeared, and the next thing I know, it was the Klan throwing rocks at us, um, which was one of the realest experiences I had. In, a, in that kind of situation. But Peggy Terry was really uh, quite a wonderful woman. And uh, she did a lot of uh, uh, talking to a lot of people. And she, if you'll find her in Studs Terkel, you'll find her in that book. And it's, she's a, an inspiration to all of us. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have us uh, just do one more question. We've only got about 10 minutes left. So I'm going to go. His hand was up first. Sorry. <laughs> all right. Hi. Um, I've been following the news. I've been watching like uh, the Antifa movement um, and you know, the anti-fascist uh, groups. And there's a lot of people that are there's some blowback. They're getting some blowback. These anti-fascist groups saying that you're actually doing a disservice to the you know uh, anti-white supremacy movement. Uh, that you're we should be just sitting around engaging in uh, respectful dialogue and not taking this the more direct action route. I mean, they're getting out in the streets with clubs with weapons and fighting against the, uh, you know, the white supremacist, white nationalist groups. I'm wondering, what's your take on that? What's, is there a best way to go about this, that, you know, sitting around respectful dialogue and waiting for the Nazis to take over what like, that happened in Nazi Germany? Well, you already know my take, and I'm a sociologist, so well, I, I'm biased yeah, as holy I, hell, but you know, what, I, what's I, your take on this? I would like to use, uh, and I think it's so appropriate, a uh, quotation from Chairman Fred Sr., and he always said, you don't fight racism with racism, you fight racism with solidarity. And I think organizing, I think one of the greatest things in this country right now is the right-wing movement because it's organizing people. It's, I, I, I was talking with some young brothers on, on, on the street the other day 
that was working the street, the street pharmaceutical brothers. And they, we, yeah, I mean, we got to, we got to really talking about this Donald Trump thing, man. We got to deal with this Donald Trump. So, you know, I mean, they stopped working. And we're having this long conversation about Donald Trump. Then, you know, the, 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 you know, the interest shifted to, okay, look at these police. They come in here to harass us. We ain't doing nothing wrong. No, you're not doing nothing wrong right now. But we're having political, yeah, we're having, we're having a good political dialogue. So it's, it's to me, Donald Trump is really, uh, uh, I, I think, a great shot in the arm in terms of doing what Bobby Sills said, seizing the time to organize, because the first thing, people, people get all excited about, oh, this is happening, that's happening, but it's an organizing tool. It's an, you know, history has taught us. It's an organize. Repression breeds resistance. You organize. You take that thing. You take that negative, as Mao say, and turn it into a positive. So I think it's, it's a good organizing tool, and basically what it does is, it, 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 in my opinion, it alienates for everything that, the right does, they alienate themselves from humanity because then there's righteous people that are coming forth saying, no, this, 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 we're not about this. You know, we're about a people's, this is a people's thing. And I think that, that, that taking each event, uh, because they're not the smartest folks. I mean, if you look at some of these characters and some of the stuff, uh, you know, I mean, even with the president, you know, I got an autistic son and he says, that guy is a dummy there. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, when, when Stefan calls somebody a dummy, they dummy, you know. But, but, but I think taking and, taking and being able to organize, to be able to organize off each um, event and, 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 and using it tactically, I think is really, because a lot of times I think people cry too much about what's happening instead of looking at that situation and saying, hey, and because that's the way, that's the way Huey and Bobby did it. They said, okay, here, the, that's, the party started, the, 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 there was a brother, it started over street sign, then the brother Denzel Duwell, the pigs had killed him. They were raising money for a funeral, the pigs started harassing him. The next thing you know, Huey said, hey, Bobby, you're going to go to the state capitol. He made the wrong turn, kind of like Christopher Columbus. And he just didn't wipe out a nation of indigenous people. But Bobby made the wrong turn, went in, and bam, you know, they seen the brothers with guns, and that ignited the party. So a lot of times I think we can take their weaknesses uh, because they're not strong. Racism blinds you, and, and, and they're not strong. So we take those weaknesses and build on them. We capitalize on every tactical error that they make. Can I, can I say something real, real yeah. quick? I, I think we need it all. I mean, let right. me, uh, when we talk about uh, defense, self-defense, mm -hmm. uh, the right to self-defense, um, that is the ability of people to defend themselves. And so, but, but historically, if we think, think about this, and we're supposed to, I think Malcolm was the best about not turning the other yeah. cheek, right? I just want to say, I, I wrote some dates down of, of people that were murdered uh, just in 1969, in, in that summer. We're talking Manuel Ramos on May 4th, 1969. Uh, Chacha would talk a lot about Reverend Bruce Johnson and his wife yeah, were killed on, Septem on September 29th, 1969. John Soto, Steve Michael Rose, Soto, yeah. on October 5th, October 11th, 1969. Larry Roberson, yep. in July, uh, July, of 19, July 16, 1969. Fred Hampton, Mark Clark, 
December 4th, 1969. And we're supposed to um, um, not fight in that way, right? I mean, we have these, these, are, the, these are the histories that we will not forget about, and, we, and we're going to face up to that. And let me say one other thing, though. On the other side, we need it all because these organizations also had free health clinics, breakfast for children's programs. They had, they were, they understood that a lot of ordinary working folks were, would, were, had been living in fear, you know, had been turned off to like more revolutionary organizing and they understood it was the genius of these organizations to say we need to create these kinds of community institutions run by the people, right, so that people understand that this was about caring for our lives, right, the government wasn't going to do it, right, and so you have, we needed all, all of that, you got to fight hard on the streets, hand-to-hand -hand combat and we got to build those very, you know, very, very grassroots spaces that are going to care for people. Each of these organizations, law clinics, yeah. free law clinics, free health clinics, breakfast for children's programs, right? And in doing that, then people learn. They say, wow, okay, these organizations are starting to care for my kids. They're starting to care for my health. They're starting to care for my, my community. And that was dangerous, too. Yeah, I want to tell you something about the, the, uh, the uh, medical center. The medical centers, we had medical centers that what we would do is go to the hospitals and we would more or less sort of kind of help persuade the doctors, if you get my drift, to come into the black community and give free medical uh, care, regardless to income, what have you. Uh, one of the things that we found out, and you can you could obtain this if you uh, Google uh, COINTELPRO, uh, when we sued the federal government behind the assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, that these, these documents that the FBI had been uh, detailing uh, surfaced. When we were attempting to open up the free medical center, uh, we called it the Spurgeon Jake Winters. It was named after another Panther that was killed in a gun battle with uh, a couple of police uh, on the west side of Chicago. The FBI told one of the biggest street gangs, which was the Vice Lords, uh, you can sell as much dope as you want to as long as you don't, you keep the Panthers from opening up that free medical center. Okay, now, as my brother said, a lot of folks thought that the Panthers just put their tams on and sung, sung kumbaya and, and it happened. No, we had to get down with the get down. So we had to, yes, we had to meet some of these brothers on their own level in terms of, and when they came, same thing with the um, uh, Blackstone Rangers. We, we, when, the, when we developed our Breakfast for Children program, I can remember one time in the infamous Cabrini Green Projects, we had a breakfast program at uh, Catholic Church St. Dominic's. And the, the daily administration had gave machine guns to the Blackstone Rangers, and they were literally get on top of the projects and shoot at the little children coming to a free breakfast program. This constituted Chairman Fred to go in and meet with Jeff Ford, and he told Jeff Ford, if there's another shooting at our breakfast programs, there won't be a such thing as a Blackstone or Ranger. Okay. This was real talk. This actually happened. When we went into that church, it was only about eight of us. We were outmanned, outgunned, okay? 
But because of the charismatic nature of Chairman Fred, Jeff Ford developed that respect, and, and, and Chairman Fred was able to politicize the Blackstone Rangers. And as a matter of fact, when Chairman Fred was assassinated, they asked to be the pallbearers. They didn't even want the Panthers. They asked to be the pallbearers for Chairman Fred because there was so much respect. And part of the reason of the government coming down on Jeff Ford was because he had been politicized. He had been politicized by the Black Panther Party. So a lot of our programs, when Jericho Hoover found out that we started breakfast programs, there were no breakfast programs feeding hungry children going to school. That was the genius of Huey Newton and Bobby Seals. Hey, and it, 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 and it heightened the contradiction to the point where Jericho Hoover said, we got to get rid of that. So what they would do, they would come in to our programs, and they would go into the refrigerator. They would come into the churches, kick the doors in, and throw all the eggs and milk and what have you on the floor to stop the breakfast programs. So when J. Edgar Hoover made the statement that the Black Panther Party was the greatest threat to the internal security of this country, it was because of the Rainbow Coalition. It was because of those dynamic programs. As, as the brother said, the busing the prison program. We took a Greyhound bus, and we put a panther on the side of it. And we would take families to the various concentration camps, which impeded the, the institution from doing their treachery in the dark. A lot of folks couldn't get to their loved ones. That heightened the contradiction. So there, there, as we went on, we continued to evolve and develop so many different... Sickle cell anemia was a disease that was killing African Americans. The government wasn't speaking. We took a yellow school bus and turned it into a lab. And we went around the, 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 the Chicagoland area and this country testing for sickle cell anemia. We exposed that disease. Then the government jumped in and, of course, some of the other corrupt... Uh, uh, poverty pimps, Jesse Jackson, and they took, they, you know, they co-opted. But that's what we wanted. Okay, now you can take it to the next level to claim that you, you know, if you talk to Jesse Jackson, he says he started the Rainbow Coalition. It wrong. It was, it, 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 it was this. This was a brainchild of Chairman Fred and the Black Panther Party. Just one thing, quick on this: uh, the question about fighting back with the Nazi types. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, you know, it. It's a delicate balance. Uh, on the one hand, you know, uh, you, you could see that the number 40, whatever number he is, the guy who's the president, he, uh, he talks about the, the, you know, the, the demonstrators at Berkeley, uh, you know, the counter demonstrators. Um, you know, I think that uh, sometimes it's true that the, the anarchists can be a little uh, push the edges a little bit too much and it's not helpful. On the other hand, you can't, you can't hold people back. You can't tell black people not to do Black Lives Matter because it's going to piss off too many, you know, rednecks or, you know, right-wing white people. You can't tell people, uh, you know, just in general, you've you got you to be careful about that. On the gun front, uh, you know, I think that we, we shouldn't be naive, that uh, it shouldn't just be the police and the military that have guns. Or the right wing. On the other hand, I'm not a big fan of guns. My guns were stolen by my Native American brothers. Said they were going to to Wounded Knee. They probably went to Wisconsin. Uh, but I didn't miss them, you know. <laughs> and I just think that uh, we, 
you know, we want to encourage as much, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I think we got power in our, our message, and I do believe that we have more of the truth than the other side, and I think that we actually have the numbers, and it's up to us to organize more and more people and to think of creative ways to block this other stuff. But we should have a little military unit that uh, yep. is ready to act as it has to, to be quite frank. George Jackson. There you go. And, right. you know, and there's a long tradition in the black community of uh, de- self-defense. Robert yes. Williams going way back in North the Carolina. Defense for defense. Yeah. Yes. There's, a, there's a lot of uh, left organizations now that are going through weapons training that people don't even know about. Uh, I was trained back last summer out in Phoenix. But uh, there's, uh, they're all over the place. And, and they're just not going to put up with what they put up with over the past few, a lot of years. Now, 50 years ago, people were shot down, and they've been shot down over those 50 years. And so a lot of the, the left organizations are training. So, uh, and now with, with uh, uh, Trump lifting the ban uh, on the police departments having uh, military equipment, it's going to get worse. Yep. Yeah, he you're going to see every that. little, you know, you're going to you're going to see Mayberry with a tank. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're going to be running around with a damn tank and military equipment, Barney fight. You know, I mean, everybody will have it. You know, and and people are just not going to put up with it. All right, I'm going to be the the mean one here and and cut off the conversation because we're at eight thirty. Sorry. Um, or the college is close. <laughs> Claire's getting tired. No, no. I, so first of all, let's give these guys a round of applause for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Come back anytime. All right. And we'll be around for a little bit. If you have questions, you're welcome to come up. I just wanted to sort of shift things a little bit so we're, we can still stick around and we can talk more informally. So thank you all for coming. <laughs>